Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. I would like to take a moment. Today is September 11th that we're recording this and in memory of all of those who perished and the families that were affected you know, by this tragedy. It's been many years now, but you know, I'm in New York and I don't think any of us, even the United States, will ever forget that day and, and the ramifications. So with that in mind, my guest today is Dr. Alessio Fasano. Oh boy, that name just flows off my lips. He's a world-renowned expert on celiac disease, gluten intolerance, and probably the first researcher to provide the scientific evidence of the molecule zonulin that increases intestinal permeability and gave rise to the term leaky gut, which I know I think he has mixed feelings about. Uh, Dr. Fasano is a professor of pediatrics at Mass General Hospital, which is a well-known Harvard affiliate and in charge of the celiac program there. Dr. Fasano's book, Gluten Freedom, which we'll be talking about with Susie Flaherty, by the way, is truly a classic in this area uh, in helping a layperson and even myself as a doctor understand how gluten can be quite harmful and not just in patients who are predisposed to celiac disease, which obviously we know is a lot more common than we ever realized. I can't wait for his next book too, which is due out in the spring. I already pre-ordered it, Gut Feelings, in which he's going to be talking a lot. And we will even touch on how the microbiome and the gut interact. So it's with my great honor to welcome Dr. Alessio Fasano to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Dean, for having me on your show. Yeah, I I feel like we were really lucky in America. We got this Italian import uh, many years ago that's provided a lot of... uh, Really great stuff. So anyway, actually, the first thing I have to do a little bit with some fun, and then we're going to get to the serious stuff, is that I love reading Gluten Freedom. I really did. It was so fluid. I guess we have to also thank Susie Flaherty because uh, it just really flowed. It was really a page turner for me. And you made complex material quite clear. But I do have to ask you, do you think Gluten Freedom was the right title for this? Because I can imagine a lot of your friends back in Italy, and I know here in the United States, when they can't have pasta or bread, they don't feel exactly like it's freedom. I mean, even in our jails, they get bread and water. So how did you come up with that title? <laughs> and, uh, actually, um, you know, Susie and I had, uh, you know, this discussion with the editor, and I believe that they come up with two or three suggestions that this okay. catchy one, you know, comes to right. the title of a book. Um, the author has very little to say because they are very I, I know that I've, I've written a book too, and that you're right. right. They uh, they have the last say on the sale. So okay, so it wasn't like you know here people are just free, uh, you know, because we'll we'll get into it. I mean, it is it's complex for the patients. I mean, we are in a society where grains and gluten are very prevalent, and even though people, and again, really thanks to you, and I think Peter Green here in New York have become so much more aware of that issue, but it's still a struggle for a lot of patients. So, yeah. Well, again, was it play on the concept gluten-free and, and kind of freedom mm-hmm. from disease? Right. Okay. Stuff. I like that. That's good. All right. So let's get into, we're going to first just touch on celiac disease, which is obviously what you're really known for. And I know we're going to get to some of the other really fascinating things that you're working on now, but I tell patients, and I've learned this myself, you know, in the mid-1980s when I was in medical school, you know, there was about a chapter, a page or two on celiac disease in my pediatric textbook. And typically it showed young children with distended bellies and had chronic diarrhea, you know, and what we call the failure to thrive. They just weren't developing well. When did you start to recognize in your career that this problem was a lot bigger and more common than people realized? Um, I would say definitely when I moved from Italy here in the United States in the early 90s, this was the time in which there had been so much that was going on in the world of the science and the clinic of celiac disease from Europe. There were some new information coming up. Uh, the fact that this was genetically determined 
was pretty obvious. The biochemistry of the grain that used gluten came more and more in the radar screen of experts, agronomists, and so on and so forth. So the two key elements, so the genetic predisposition, environmental factor triggering celiac disease became more and more objects of in-depth analysis. And of course, this was also the time that preceded the completion of the human genome project. And the paradigm at that time was, if you have the genes, you're exposed to the environmental trigger, these are the two conditions that are necessary or sufficient to develop a problem. And when I move over here, with that mindset, I wonder why celiac disease is so frequent in Europe. At that time, the frequency was roughly one in 300, and so rare in United States, it was at that time estimated to be one in 10,000. Right, so, right. We weren't looking for it. That's what I meant to ask you. So in Italy, you were, I know you did a lot of your residency, I guess, training. So, so you yeah. were seeing the cases in Italy where obviously people eat a lot of gluten products. Yeah, and, and again, you know, of course, the, the quantity may be important, but the, the, this is we'll uh, all or none. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the genes are the same. Right. Because, you know, right. our ancestors come from Europe, right. mainly. Uh, the grains are the grains, right. so the, the yeah. chemistry is there, yeah. and the, the disease was not here. So this yeah. is a classical project in which you want to be involved as a scientist because it's a win-win. Mm. You know, no matter what is the outcome of your research, because if indeed was you know that this was true that disease was rare here, you have to assume there was some other factor that prevented these two to interplay, so you would mm. win a Nobel Prize because yeah, you prevent yeah. autoimmunity that way. Yeah, but unfortunately, that was not the case, and up to be the second scenario that was overlooked. The, the problem is, again, uh, it's always the same story. What you find is something, and you, are you knowledge about this? Because, you know, right. if you don't know what an elephant is, you may sit just beside the elephant and the people will ask you, have you ever seen an elephant? Your answer is mm. no. Yeah. And that time, the definition of celiac disease was indeed a rare disorder, only kids with a big belly. And by the way, that chapter in general was not even a chapter, it was literally one paragraph it was with a page. Yeah. was smaller, not 12, but might be nine. So right. because it was considered rare. Yeah. But looking in that direction, we were looking the wrong thing. We're looking right. probably at a tip on the iceberg that was much bigger than that. Right. You know, just one thing to then you touch about the Nobel Prize. You know, you and one other person I've interviewed, Dr. Uh, Kevin Tracy, I think are potential Nobel Prize winners. So don't count yourself out <laughs> yet. I really <laughs> do. Daniel, we'll get to that. All right. And so why do you think also, this was interesting too, and this happened to me in my own practice. I, we may talk about a couple of these cases where celiac started to, to present in adults, and I think that's what threw me off. I, I'll tell you about it after, because I think they're fascinating. I had a couple of cases that I diagnosed, one of them with the help of the patient, because this was, again, this was 20 years ago, because she came to me and was having, you know, I, I do a lot of uh, immunology and asthma, and one of my patients came to me, and she was, uh, her asthma was really bad, and I was treating her for like a lot of environmental allergies with our immunotherapy treatments, and she was struggling to get better. And then at one point, she came to me, and she's like, you know, I was just testing. I found that I'm anemic, which I know is going to set off bells in your mind. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, you know, we have a, a friend of mine. He's a hematologist. Go see him. She went to see him. He evaluated. He trained at the NIH. He's a really good guy, you know. And he says, you have iron deficiency. Let's put you on iron. And lo and behold, a few months go by and she's not better. And then she was a very bright patient. You know, again, this was 20 years ago. She comes to me. She goes, do you think I could have celiac disease? And I said, hmm, I said, you know, I really have to look into this. I said, I think it's possible I have to do my research. And then we ended up sending her to Columbia, Peter Green. And, and sure enough, she did. And once she cut out gluten out of her diet, not only did her anemia resolve and joint pain that she was having, but her asthma got better. So yeah. it, that was, the, for me, the eye-opening moment. Yeah. But why do you think that it shifted that we're seeing there's more now Older people, like they're not presenting as children as much anymore. As a matter of fact, all the major experts <clears throat> historically were pediatricians because we thought there was a pediatric conditions. Right. There were already adult cases described, but our, you know, interpretation of the matter was, okay, these are people that probably had CD disease forever and had symptoms that are so non-specific or was a, they were asymptomatic. Right. They just came under the radar screen and then, you know, they full bloom with the symptoms later on in life. Mm -hmm. And that's we, uh, again, 
partially to try to answer why CD disease are so rare in the United States, start to follow prospectively these families in which there were family history of CD disease. And so the kids that have CD disease, mom and dad not, but they were part of the screening and we followed for them for years. And we start to realize that these people that test negative for years, then all of a sudden they shifted and became positive. So, uh, and again, this is the other reason why, you know, we overlooked. But Europe's, your, your uh, patients is the quintessential example why we were under the impression that CD disease were one in 10,000. Because an adult with anemia, that doesn't respond to our supplement. It would never be considered as a possibility, as you did not at that time. Right, right. But this could be related to a malabsorption of iron, the secondary to right. CD disease, because the paradigm was CD disease developed it's early. Yeah. And it can be at this age. Mm-hmm. Or if you're obese, you were not screening anybody that's obese. Mm-hmm. Right. And now we know that, again, now that we have the tools that we didn't have at that time for general screening, that we have, again, the understanding what CD disease is really all about and so on and so forth. Now we know that CD disease can occur at any age. I have patients, you know, develop CD disease in their late 80s. Yeah, and that's anemia, crazy. It, wow. It, the most frequent way that the disease presents itself, not with diarrhea. To have diarrhea, weight loss, you have to have a substantial amount of your intestine inflamed. Right. Well, you know, we absorb iron only in a few inches of our GI tract soon after the right. gut. If right. those are gone and the rest is spared, you will not have diarrhea, but you will have anemia. That's a great point. With that fatigue and so on and so forth. So uh, the reality of the story that this big advance on uh, screening tools, the better understanding what diseases, um, all nine yards, they now make us pretty in tune with what is the epidemiology of the disease. You can develop this at any age. Remember that when we start this, I personally was accused of trying to sell the refrigerator in the North Pole because said, you know, you're wasting your time. Right. And, and, and there was a lot of pushback at that time because he said, we check for it and it's not here. Now, mm-hmm. this is a mm-hmm. memory history. It's not there anymore. But, you know, now nobody would even question the CD disease. Of course. It's frequent. Uh, Let me ask you, too, because we'll jump around a little bit. But, you know, one of your things, which I love, is like you call the two different things, your, your holy trinity and your three pillars of what causes this whole issue to be present. But do you think, to just to take one piece of that, the environment do you think that also gluten has changed? I remember reading an article in one of the magazines here in New York. It was really good about super gluten. Yes. I mean, and maybe about that wheat has changed from where it was harvested years ago. Do you feel that could be a reason that we're seeing these later onsets or no? I'm not sure, actually. Well, first of all, not only we see later onset, we see this steep increase in the frequency of seeded disease. So mm. they really like any other immune disease and epidemics, these conditions. Um, I don't think that the, the genetic or grains has been the reason why we see this increase. As a matter of fact, you know, there have been changes, but we're measuring centuries and millennia. So the Greeks and Romans, they were eating the wheat, it was 4% of the plant was gluten. Now the modern uh, wheat that had been a, a reiteration of the agriculture revolution two, three centuries ago has three times more gluten. So there's been an increase, of course. But these epidemics succeeded these changes. So yeah. it's not that the grains changes. However, if you ask yourself, are we eating more gluten than we used before? The answer is probably yes. Why? Mm-hmm. Because gluten is used in the food industry. It makes, it makes food I, very soft. If I say doughy and tasty, yeah. Absolutely. And we'll to, to glue stuff together so that, you know, will be... It's the know, texture, the way I understand. People, that's what people love, yeah. Yeah, and that's the reason why, you know, who, who has to embrace a gluten-free diet as a celiac, as the challenge, they say, I know that I don't eat, eat pasta and pizza, but, you know, there are a lot of other products that right. apparently right. should not have gluten in there, but because they the food, pile it, it. Exactly, they but, pile it in. Well, all in all, maybe that you will end up to eat more because of that. Yeah. You know, just to talk about in the past also, which I find interesting, you know, and you mentioned that we think that some of our ancestors, whether it was in the last 50, 100 years, and obviously going back maybe thousands of years, ate a different diet than we ate. And, you know, I sometimes like to tell my patients what we're trying to, because there is obviously, we're going to get into this later, there's so much confusion about what's the best diet to eat. And, and obviously I think it's very particular where you live. 
But I sometimes say to patients, you know, I believe, quote, in the biblical diet. You know, if it was around the biblical times, you could eat it because it was fresh food and they ate the olives and they ate the fruits and the vegetables that they grew. And of course, they killed the animals and they fished for the fish. But I was thinking about the other day, again, my, a little bit of my biblical training, that they also ate grains. I mean, it was Joseph, the prince of Egypt, who saved Egypt by eating grains. And how, why wasn't that a problem back then? <laughs> no, That's you- right. So, so indeed, uh, you know, you mentioned the three pillars, and so now it became five. <laughs> That's right. And then we can go a little bit more in details on that. But, you know, the reality of the story is nutrition is absolutely instrumental but not because the different grains, uh, the amount of gluten and so on and so forth, because the nutrition influences so many other functions in our body, particularly how belligerent or friendly is your immune system with yourself. And again, we can discuss a little bit more in details why that's the case. But the reality of the story, we've been having a shift of the way that we eat that has been dramatically fast in, in the very last short period of time. So for 99% of our evolution, we've been eating it the same way. And then three major events occurred that really changed the entire ordeal. Of these two million years of history, the first major change was 10,000 years ago with the events of agriculture. And therefore, you are not a gather-hander anymore, but you can predict. So you develop the capability to have a predictable amount of food. You domesticate the crops and animals and so on and so forth. The second major change was urbanization, so that people, they start to move to cities because that's where the job opportunity was. Mm-hmm. And therefore, less and less people were in the countryside doing agriculture. I mean, 10,000 years ago, everybody was cultivating whatever they were consuming. Now they are consumers and producers. And of course, the number of people that produce were less and less and the number of consumers were more and more. So the demand increased and the offer was pretty much limited by the capability of farmers to produce that amount. The kiss of death of what's going on now, I believe is the third reiteration of the change, the globalization. So little farmers that would produce and sell locally are getting more and more rare because it's not a viable economic you know, uh, paradigm why big corporations, they took over and they produce large amount of food. That means that this food probably is produced in one place and needs to be moved thousands of miles of where it's consumed. And in doing that, you have to preserve this food because if you lose part of this, well, it's, it's a major economic loss. Yeah. And even when you grow this stuff, let's say crops like wheat, you can't afford to lose that Mm. products and then you have to use pesticides and so on and so forth so all this yeah that you know that's right that, that needs to be shipped so you have to use preservatives that you have to be protected and therefore pesticides and so on and so forth led to the change the dramatic change of what we did because you can make the argument as you were saying you know in the biblical time we're eating gluten with grains these are very different grains. So bottom line is that, you know, at the biblical times, you were eating the same grains maybe that you were eating now. From the organolectic point of view, though, that's not the case because, no. you know, they need to be produced uh, and, and in one place, shipped in another place, preserved, you know, the, the crop and so on and so forth. So. Um, I want to bring up even before biblical times because you're such a good speaker. I was watching one of your presentations. I'm not sure if you're a part-time comedian, like if you go to the clubs in Boston, but uh, because you were saying once, you know, pre-urbanization times, man, 99% of the time was searching for food and 1% was thinking about reproduction. And you thought that balance was a little bit off, which I- It is off. You had me laughing very hard, you know, when I, whenever you sing through a medical lecture, having- some very good humor interspersed definitely drives home the points. But let me ask you something. Do you think, again, with what's going on, that celiac disease or gluten, we're going to get to sensitivity and tolerance, should be screened for pretty regularly? And if so, which tests would you do? Because, you know, again, and we'll, we'll try to make this helpful for the listeners because all they know is I want to be checked for, they'll come in saying, I want to be checked for celiac. That's right. And uh, tests, which you can describe. Well, the premise in terms of if screening and how frequently and why is the fact that celiac diseases are one of a kind, 
autoimmune disease. You know, you give the example of somebody that develops a syndrome that apparently has nothing to do with the gut and the diarrhea and so on and so forth. So, you know, this is not like diabetes. You pee a lot, you drink a lot. It can be anything else but diabetes. Maybe a right, person right. is but it's diabetes. Here, I can really challenge you to tell me any kind of sign or symptoms that I will make an argument that can be associated with syndrome disease. And so... It yeah. is really a clinical. And, and how about, I'm sorry. And how about all the IBS symptoms? I mean, like anybody oh, that comes that in, a, anybody I comes in saying, yeah. "I've been right." I mean, should, that, should that person be screened for Absolutely. celiac? Well, the reality of the story is, when I started all this, there were no labs available. We have to set up our own lab. Now right. everybody can screen for celiac disease for right. forty dollars. Forty dollars. Right. Right. So the the suggestion I give to my colleagues and healthcare professional is low threshold. If you really think that this could be celiac disease, it's a blood test that looks for specific autoantibodies that are called anti-tissue transglutaminase or anti-TTG mm -hmm. for short, that will give you a great level of confidence that you're in the right direction. And if mm -hmm. you are, then it's the time to refer your patient to a gastroenterologist, just, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. celiac um, you know, expert, and then eventually they take from there. But, mm -hmm. but again, uh, my, my recommendation is to use a low threshold of screening. Okay, I, I hope the listeners will stay with us on this because I think it's so important. I mean, I had to do a little extra always reading over the years, but I got you know more comfortable with this. So the tissue transglutaminase, the TTG, and I think IgA, that's the one that is right. the most, it's a very good screening test. Uh, I believe was that the anti-endomyosomal antibody is the good conformational test. Yeah, the anti-endomysium antibodies is something that is more subjective because somebody has to look at a microscope and make a call while uh, the anti-TPG okay. is a machine that reads. Okay. So, um, and it, the combination of the two, they give you a great level of confidence. But for practical purposes, also for cost purposes, just doing the TTG antibodies that is the screen. the IgA, it's a good first screen yes. that okay. every PCP or pediatrician should Right. So that's a great, in, yeah, that's a great thing to box. know. Yeah. <laughs> and now let's get to the trickier part because I remember I used to, you know, it's funny, the labs also for a while were not really in sync. A lot of the companies that we use and we were getting gliadin antibodies. And a lot of times those could be positive. And I know you're probably like now saying, oh, how am I going to explain this? But again, it was, it was interesting because I went to a, a lecture in New York by Peter Green. He would actually lecture to our immunology society and really was clarifying, like these gliadin antibodies are very nonspecific. We don't know what to do with it. And then in your book, and we're going to get into about how all of these other gluten-sensitive symptoms. So what do you do with that? Do you order gliadin antibodies? Do they mean something to you if the other ones are negative? So there are a big difference between the anti-TTG and the anti-gliadin antibodies. Mm -hmm. The anti-TTG antibodies and antibodies, again, one protein that we produce. So it is an, uh, what we call technical autoantibody. So you attack your own body. So it's right. a good biomarker autoimmunity. The anti-gliadin antibodies, and antibodies, again, something that doesn't belong in, uh, to our body. Right, good point. Okay. In this case, gliadin. It tells me only three things. One that I know already, that you're eating gluten. The second <laughs> okay, one right. that, that, you know, this gluten, no, fragment of gluten will sneak through your gut barrier and uh -huh. that in your body. Okay. And the third, that the immune system sees an enemy, something that doesn't belong to your body, does its own job. Okay. Fight against it by producing, uh, you know, specific weapons. In this case, the antibodies against gluten. And then these are the anti-gladian antibodies. In the 70s, when we didn't discover TTG yet, that was the only test that we had. And we used that. Okay. And again, was just to tell us that we have problem with gliadin. Right. But we're not telling us what that means. A lot of people, they are healthy. They may have anti-gliadin yeah. antibodies just because their gut leaks. That's all. Well, do you, um, well, the gliadin antibodies, just by the way, like I think it's, they make IgG and IgA ones. They do this, and then right. again, just telling you you're eating gluten. There's nothing else that it really. No. Gets. And okay. again, the rule of the law, when it comes to the subgroup of antibodies, is that an IgA response, no matter if it's to gluten, to TGG, and so on and so forth, is telling us that this is something that is happening on a body field that is the mucosa. Right. When it's IgG, that's systemic, goes everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why the IgA are more specific with what we're looking for, because we're looking for inflammation at the mucosal right. level, I have the body field, mm -hmm. and the IgA antibodies gives us more confidence that's what is going mm -hmm. on there. 
the IgG more systemic and can be non-specific mm-hmm. because you can have, you know, let's say an inflammation somewhere else that with the death of cells that leaks out. Right. This but if somebody was positive to them and obviously they're having some various symptoms, you, you would probably would say, you know, let's cut out the gluten for a month and just see how you feel. Or would you also say, let's see those antibodies go down if you... So, so we went through three different stages uh, when it comes to gluten-related disorders and, and therefore the, 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 the interpretation of these antibodies. The first one that I was telling you until the 70s that was the only thing that we have. So we use the anti-glanin antibodies as a guide of what's going on. The second stage, when we were finally having more specific tests like the TTG, in which we abandoned the anti-glanin antibodies, mm-hmm. people said, this is not specific, it doesn't tell mm-hmm. us anything. Right. It just confused the matter. So you should not use this to right. diagnose for severe disease. Mm-hmm. And this was the time in which we were convinced, including myself, and the only reaction to gluten was severe disease. And if mm-hmm. severe disease was ruled out, you had no business to go on a gluten-free diet. Mm-hmm. Then, more recently, from the 2000 going forward, we realized there's a spectrum of gluten-related disorders. So not just the autoimmune response, but it's also the allergic response to gluten. Right. With allergy, there is this non-celiac gluten sensitivity or gluten sensitivity for short. Because we don't have anything better mm-hmm. with celiac disease, we look into the value of testing these people with gluten sensitivity with the anti-gliding antibodies. I mean, when do you use the genetic testing? The cost is so high. Yeah, it's really prohibitive. Well, sometimes the insurance is not cover. Yeah. We don't use it routinely, but under specific circumstances. So if you have a, a clear suspicious, the TTG positive, the symptoms compatible are enough to move to the next step, I straight to the endoscopy. Mm-hmm. However, sometimes, and I'm pretty sure you experience this, Patients already come to you on a gluten-free diet without having secured the, oh, right, the right. diagnosis. Yeah. And the only way to make the diagnosis is to do a gluten challenge. And a lot of them, they are really reluctant to do that. So right. a compromise would be, let's do the HLA. Great point. It's not to confirm the diagnosis because it's yeah. 95, 97% of people who see the disease are positive, but so one-third of the general population. So we do the test to rule out rather than really serious disease. So if you are on a gluten-free diet and you test for the HLA and you are negative, with great level of confidence, you are not celiac and you may have gluten sensitivity and that's the reason why you benefit lean on a gluten-free diet. Boy. And it's important to distinguish between these conditions. But if you are HLA compatible, then you eventually need to consider a gluten challenge for that patient. See if you want to make sure and they want to know, am I celiac or something else? Yeah, well, that's a great point. And also um, another use that we make the HLA is for family members. You know, they are higher Right, risk. right. So yeah. if they test negative with the TTG, what's next? Should mm. you deny on these patients or not? They have 10 times more chance to have celiac disease. And the answer can come from the HLA testing. And the HLA, does it matter if it's from the blood or the, like the, the swab in the... In the uh... Yeah, they are reliable, both of them. The blood, yeah. of course, there is a lot of validation. And the swab, it's a little bit less because the number of cells that you can get from there is a little okay. bit less. But they are both good tests. Okay. We're going to move on to something else, which to me, as I said, I think this is Nobel Prize worthy because it just opens the door. You know, my background's in immunology, allergy, and infectious disease. So it you know, uh, the different mucoses, whether it's the gut or the lung, but disease and inflammation in general, I think we're really realizing how important the gut is. Now, in your book and actually in one of your lectures, you said one of your favorite words in the English language is serendipity. <laughs> and, right. and, as you were say, and as you wrote that in the book, I was, couldn't wait to ask you the question. I said, isn't there a word in Italian for serendipity? There isn't, no? There's no such a thing. You know, yeah. we are very, you know, um, because you're a beautiful language. <laughs> and so we have to use several words to really represent exactly the same concept, but there is no such a thing. Yeah. But this was really a serendipitous discovery. Um, but but they put in this immunological context of the story, um, you know, when I was speaking about the five pillars, definitely you have to be genetically predisposed. Definitely you need to have the exposure to environmental triggers. But in order to develop any chronic inflammatory conditions that affect humankind, it looks like there are another three elements that must be there. One, a breach of these barriers that segregate the enemies from our body so that this right. two world, the genes that live within our body, and these instigators and in general large molecules that are 
keep at bay under normal circumstances can physically interact. So you have to have a, an increased permeability. The gut to be in the largest interface, but as you said, the lungs, the genital organ, the tract, and so on and so forth. The fourth element is the immune system. Of course, the immune system needs to become hyperbelligerent so that you have this chronic inflammatory process. And the fifth, and probably the most important of all, that explain why, for example, people can develop celiac disease at 70, is the microbiome. So in other words, this ecosystem of you know, microorganisms that can eventually epigenetically push on your genes so that you switch from genetic predisposition to clinical outcome. Yeah. What is interesting that these three last elements that we were not aware of, they highly influence each other. We know mm-hmm. now, scientifically speaking, that if you have a leaky gut, then again, a term that I don't like too much, but if yeah. you have a, a, a barrier that is jeopardized, of course, you have excessive access of non-self antigen, therefore the immune system will be affected. And if the immune system is affected, the composition of the microbiome is affected. If the composition of the microbiome is affected, your gut can become leakier. So they all influence each other. Let me ask you, this is important because it, it, it became such a big thing in the holistic functional medicine community, which I do work in. Um, so leaky gut became the buzzword. Now, you discovered zonulin, the, the, the molecule that basically, as you describe in your lectures, which I, again, I'm going you know, to encourage people to watch online if they're really interested in this stuff too, is that essentially the drawbridge that opens up the gut permeability. But did you use that term or did that just get taken in the lay press, you know, that this thing leaky gut or, I mean, because again, you know, obviously if you say increased intestinal permeability, people are like, what? You know, yeah. so because you do use it in your book and, and it, yeah. it does drive home a really important point. Again, maybe yeah. misused sometimes. So why? Oh, I, why definitely, have- I definitely didn't come with that. Actually, come with that was before. Oh, okay. Complementary medicine actually came with this term way before that zoning was discovered. Really? Way before. Oh, okay. Yes. So that means that people are were aware about this. They knew something again, was going on, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. We, in terms of classic traditional medicine and evidence-based science, have always been skeptical if there was no proof and so on and so forth. And again, I don't see the dichotomy at all between complementary and traditional medicine. Right. I mean, they are complementary to each other, while other Colleague of mine, they consider this a either alternate or. universe. That's right. It's <laughs> yeah. not true. It's not true. But anyhow, the bottom line is, I don't have a problem as much with the leaky gut. My problem is with the leaky gut syndrome. That seems to be an entity that mm-hmm. describes mm-hmm. a variety of diseases. That I believe does not have too much of a science. But when it comes to the fact that the permeability of the gut or or the blood-brain barrier or the lung can be modulated. When Zolin was discovered in 20 years ago already, wow. Um, yeah, it, well, indeed, that was a voodoo. I mean, you know, we've been crucified heads down with all this because uh, this is a nonsense. Now, again, historical memory is gone. Nobody would dispute that this virus can be modulated. Right. Nobody. Well, uh, and, and this is based on proteomic analysis, on genomic analysis. And so, right. In other words, that over and over again, all these conditions seem to be associated with genes that control these barriers. You know, it's interesting, too. I just thought of this, this moment, too. I mean, really think about it. you you got to believe, too, in the other mucosal barriers, whether it's the lungs or whatever, too, where there are those tight junctions that keep the cells together. There's probably got to be a molecule like that there also, whether it's, oh, you yeah. know, right? I mean, that once we understand these things better, that, so, you know... So I am a mucosal biologist. So I've been mm-hmm. studying this forever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, think about this. We have a single layer of cells, one single layer of cells. It cover the entire double tennis courts that cover. I know, I love that picture you showed. But, and that's unbelievable. You know, you know, when I draw the little pictures for my patients, because, again, what made me think about this, just so they can appreciate this, your skin has seven layers because we all know that if you've got a deep cut, you don't have that defense system. That will go right into your bloodstream. But the gut has that one cell layer. I guess they can get away with it because it produces a lot of mucus. Is that right? I mean, there's other protective yeah, but, things. You know, there. again, why you have one layer of cells and not seven? Because we want to have control of trafficking of stuff from outside inside. It's okay. not that we're completely impermeable as we believed before. As a right. matter of fact, the existence of structures like this junction in between cells, these right. layer bridges, 
was not known until the late 70s, early 80s. The Japanese group came up finally with the structural elements. And the more they were producing science, the more we realized these are not walls, these are doors. And if they are doors, this implies the concept that can be open. Now, they are most of the time closed. But what we call technically antigen sampling, so bringing up in molecules so we can learn and have the immune system to adapt to that, will require that plasticity. And zoning turns to be the key that opens these gates and under physiological circumstances allows this sampling. Now, you know, the problem that I've been always having as, as an immunologist, when you talk with a classic immunologist, let's say for autoimmunity, you break tolerance and you develop something that is a one way you can't go back. Right. I really have a hard time to believe that. And I have a hard time to conceptualize that chronic inflammation, it's something that happened because we are genetically predisposed to do so. Think about evolutionary speaking, how nonsense is this? Because of course, two million years ago, when we invented inflammation, was invented to fight a single enemy, microorganism. Inflammation is nothing else to create a very unfriendly environment for microorganisms to grow. It's too hot, there are chemicals, that will kill you and so on and so forth. You kill the enemy, but you kill also the tissue, but you see the body. But it's such a powerful tool that you want to use when it's needed, but you want to shut it off when you're done. And there is no advantage to keep that on. Now, let's say that I have severe disease or diabetes or multiple sclerosis, and I'm the product simply of a genetic mutation that made my immune system to switch on and not be capable to switch off anymore. What will be my chance to survive to evolution if I don't have any return on investment? This right. is not like thalassemia, right. well, you know, which a, I will have right. the advantage to get less malaria. Yeah, I don't want to go off target. I know you're doing some work in this area. This is almost like with COVID. You know, it's how the yeah. primitive immune system is just on fire and it, it shouldn't be, you know. And but the point that I was trying to make is the only logical explanation of chronic inflammation is that the immune system is chronically exposed because of weakness of this barrier to yeah. the enemies and continue to do the job they're supposed to do to fight when under attack. Let that- me ask you a question too, because this is a question I get all the time from patients that are seeing me that know that I do functional complementary medicine along with my conventional practice. They say, what can I do to heal my leaky gut? They'll ask me about L-glutamine. They'll ask about probiotics. I know you can mention the drug that you have been working on, but do those things work The uh, or anything nutritionally that you're I'm, aware of? I'm going to use the same terminology that I've been using with, you know, when I've been asked to comment about COVID-19. So we really are building the airplane we're flying. So that's the reason why I don't have an intelligible answer of what can be done to quote-unquote fix a leaky gut. Mm-hmm. We know that this is multifactorial. We know, for example, that you drink a lot. You know, alcohol can, you know, shed off your mucus layer that protects you. So that is cause-effect relationship. Right. So right. stop drinking and you fix that. But most of the time, we don't know. Okay. And of course, L-glutamine is good because it allows, you know, to give energy to the intestine to repair. Uh, probiotics is good because, as I told you, this biosis, imbalance of, mm-hmm. of the gut microbiome seems to be one of the strongest stimuli for zone release and therefore for increased permeability. The reality of the story is that until we do not have more basic understanding of what are the stimuli that create the problem in that particular person, you don't have a target intervention. So you can do general things, as we said. And I have to say, going back to nutrition, sometimes just a healthy nutrition is the best way to go. Because if you have a dysbiosis because you eat a Western diet, that will give advantage to some microorganism that we know as a fact can increase gut permeability because of regulating the zone and pathway. I want to move on to something, and I think myself and so many of us are rooting for you and what the kind of work that you're doing because of the connection between this leaky gut, increased motility, and autoimmunity. Now, you've done a great video, which, again, I encourage all of the listeners to watch. The gut is not like Vegas. What happens in the gut does not stay in Vegas. It does not stay in the gut. And I guess that's based off the movie of what goes on in Vegas you know, stays in Vegas, the opposite, the one with Ashton Kusher and Cameron Diaz. But I want to ask you something. 
because of the work that you're doing, which I think is so important, do you think, again, not to denigrate them, but do you think that the rheumatologists and the drug companies that are making all of these biologics that are targeting immune cells, I worry about them. I try to tend not to prescribe them. I use them as a last resort or refer people for them for a last resort. Do you think it might be a, a misdirection, really? Um, the reality of the story, Dean, it's, as I was saying before, if mm. you don't have a, the full understanding of the basic of a problem, you don't have a therapeutic target. We know that inflammation is creating the problem if you're right. It's like the end step, right, yeah. So, and the only option that we have is to put the inflammation under control. But this is like that you have pneumonia that brings fever. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you take Tylenol, the fever goes away. But you're removing the consequence, not the cause of right. the fever. Right. So if you know that the fever is due to pneumonia, then you can go after the cause and remove it. We are in the same kind of situation right now for a variety of conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. Well, you know what's interesting too? Like, I'm sorry to jump in, but it's like if you watch the TV commercials, because you can't miss it. If you watch a little TV, I watch a little bit of TV. Every other commercial is from the drug companies. But it's so interesting now that the same treatments for, let's say, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and Crohn's disease are all the same. Well, but you know, again, what is the surprise there? All the drugs that we use for IBD are recycled from RA. So in other words, you know, RA right. is an inflammatory process in which some chemokines and cytokines like interferon right. gamma are involved. They come up with a biologic that seems to work for RA. They try for IBD. But again, you are treating the fever not the reason why you have the fever. Right. And when you do that, you pay consequences because yes. now the causes keep going. Right. And as a matter of fact, point. You know, this, we know that a lot of people that go on biologists, they don't respond anymore after initial response, that they can be more susceptible to infection because what you do by putting a break on inflammation, again, you are subtracting the tool that we use to fight enemies that are very serious enemies for us. That's the reason why people, they are on biologists, they have increased risk to develop tuberculosis. Right, and other lymphomas. That's right, and then you have indeed the immune system that is watching for for your cancers, and now they can fight, you know, cells that go nuts and start to get themselves. But this is just to buy time. Yeah. Of course, I don't want to enter in the commercial or economic uh, part of the story, but if we will have an alternative, like, for example, stop the antigen trafficking, mm-hmm. that may be the reason why the inflammation is going, you go after the cause, not mm-hmm. consequence. And I, and I think that, you know, just to your point, too, honestly, a lot of so many patients I see, that's what they want. That's what they want. That's what they're coming to us for. And they're like saying, I want to see that there's another alternative. And as I said, by your research and your work, you're really leading the way and provide a lot of what I like to call cover for us doctors out there on the front lines who have to use the latest information that we're getting. And you're busy working in the lab and doing clinical trials. Um, as we're kind of winding down a little bit, too, I wanted to talk about interesting cases. I'm going to present one of mine because I, I think it brings out a couple of points. And then if you, it gives you a couple of minutes to think if you have a, a really vivid one yourself. But I've had a couple of really interesting celiac patients over the years. But the one I just spoke to her the other day, so that's what made me think about her. So I have to share you. I think you'll find this interesting. She's a, a young woman. She's now in her 30s. But in her late 20s, I was taking care of her for asthma and it was pretty severe. I mean, her, she had very low breathing functions for a young woman and very bright, you know, hard worker and everything. And, you know, the asthma was getting to her. And then over the years, too, I saw like, because again, back in the day, I was a little more focused. Okay, I'm focusing on her asthma. And then, you know, I'm looking at her chart and when I would see her periodically, it's like, you know, and I was, I got, she goes, I have this terrible gastritis. She goes, I don't like to take medicines for it. But I just, I vomit all the time and da, 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 da. So finally, again, I think after that other case that I saw with the anemia, the bell went off in my head, you know, maybe we should check you for celiac. And sure enough, she was big time positive. And she got on the strict gluten-free diet. She was very bright. I mean, she didn't want to be vomiting and nauseous. So that got better pretty quickly. Uh, her asthma started to improve. She still occasionally still needed her inhaler, but that got better. And the reason I'm bringing it up also is that she was such a bright woman that I remember like a couple of years ago, she brought into my office and she showed me there's a device called NEMA, which tests your food for gluten. So I was curious what you think about whether people with celiac disease should have that. And just recently, actually, 
she also got a dog that's actually smelling her food for gluten, which I've seen with the food allergy patients. I have people that have severe peanut and nut allergies, especially for the children. They would have these dogs go with them to school. I mean, it's incredible. But where do you see on the spectrum? Because it is hard. I mean, right now everybody's on lockdown and probably healthier than ever because they're eating at home. That's right. <laughs> Unfortunately. But what what do you do when you are counseling patients? I mean, would you, again, because you must have seen the spectrum of the most severe cases. Oh, yeah. You tell them to get that NEMA device to you know, test their food, or is so, that too makes them too self conscious? I, I don't know. Yeah. So just uh, to be clear for those that don't know what this NEMA device does, but again, the idea is bright in the sense that it's a device that can sense the presence of gluten in food. So you bring this to your restaurant or your friend's house when yeah. you go out. It's the, it's the size of like a little. That's little triangle. Right. It's really That's amazing. Right. That's right. You take a sample of your food, you put in there, and in a matter of three, four minutes, you will notice there is gluten in there or not. Yeah, you see a smile or, or a, a very right. angry face. It's very, very pictorial, yeah. I find two problems with that. Oh, what's that? And I put myself in people's shoes that they okay. use. So we're at a restaurant, uh, maybe myself with my wife and two friends, and I have celiac disease. They bring the food. I need to do this. The other, they need to wait for me, or they start to eat. It would not you, be you just. You just gave me an idea. They got to have it in the chefs in the back of the. Uh, you tell people I'm gluten sensitive. Well, that's every... different. Okay, no, no, again, because you know, if I have to do that, the, besides that, I inconvenience my co-host on the table. But by the time that I have an, an answer, my food is cold, <laughs> and I, I'm wondering, did yeah. I sample on the right part of the plates? Because right. the cross contamination can be another. Yeah. Right. The other thing that I believe that is perfectable, so in other words, can improve, is the fact that, you know, some people try to prove that this test is too sensitive below the 10 parts per minute. So in other words, uh, it's too uh-huh. conservative. Okay. Uh, but I think that it's, this is a matter of time because this is a prototype, but something that will, an app or something with yes. something in the sensor on the phone. Right. You don't have to awesome. just put in their screen. Yeah, oh, that would be super put in there. cool. I would not be shocked that that will. Do you, do you also worry about it again? Because I remember, this, I can't remember if this patient brought up with her asthma medication. Is gluten in like a certain amount of medications? Like, do they have to be careful? Like the same thing with like lactose? Is that? That's is that... right. We, at the beginning, many years ago, actually, gluten was used as an excipient in several drugs. But now, it's pretty much out. now everybody is aware about the gluten and what it can do to you and so on and so forth. And because there are more affordable and cheaper alternatives, people then, it's mm-hmm. extremely rare that the yeah. drugs, they have gluten there. Mm-hmm. Any any like very interesting cases come to your mind off the top of your head? Or I, I know I cut oh, you off I, guard here. I, I write another book. Oh, really? Uh, one, <laughs> one that probably... It's stuck in my mind because, you know, again, it was an awful situation. It was a young lady, again, a runner, a marathon runner that was trailing my office on a wheelchair. Oh and she gosh. said, listen, you are my last hope after which I will kill myself. I said, this is not a good start. To this conversation. Wow, a little pressure. No yeah. pressure. So her story was the following. She had some gastroesophageal reflux, nothing really major, you know, they started like six, seven months before that she came to the office and they didn't respond to the anti-acid treatment and so on and so forth. But then a month later, she started to have really problem with the ambulations. She started to have weakness in her legs mm. and slowly but surely she lost the strength. And of course, they immediately thought about multiple sclerosis. Right. Thankfully, she did the test and everything was negative. And then they thought something else, a little bit more esoteric, you know, peninsular you know, anemia, Lyme disease. In other words, everything was negative. Mm. And uh, you know, here she is on a wheelchair. So wow. somebody decided to test her for eventually the celiac disease mm. uh, testing, and she tested negative. And she, no, I don't know why, she tested for this anti-glanin antibodies. And they were positive, the old tests. Wow. And that's the reason why she came to me, mm. not for anything else. Because if right. she had done all of the TTG, probably they would not, seen her. not be no. the reason. No. They said, you know, what do you think about this? Can this be the, the reason? said, very unlikely, my dear. Very, very unlikely. But, you know, we ended up to do an endoscopy and she didn't have anything there. Long story short, I said, if you turn every single stone from the ground, there's no other explanation. This can be peripheral neuropathy from the sensitivity, but, you know, this is really a long shot in the dark. Well, she decided, I have nothing to lose. I want to do this. 
So she went on a gluten-free diet, like in a matter of three months, she was able to walk with a cane. After um, six months, she was able to walk without a cane. And after a year, she ran marathon again. Oh, my God. That is well, this a story. Is a, this is now an I know. Case. I know. I know. You have to be so but, careful. But it's, but, you know, sometimes in those dramatic cases, it gives people a lot of hope and also I mean, to pursue, you know. She would have been on a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Oh, my God. She was not stubborn and, and really trying to make That's incredible. This. That's incredible. I'm going to ask you one last question as we, we wind down in this uh, amazingly informative, fun interview. Um, do you feel pretty much everybody should be gluten-free? Um, do you, or at least, you know, I mean, I'm not saying they can't have fun once in a while. Like I tell my patients, again, obviously you don't have celiac disease, but do you think the general population would be better off? I mean, I'm not, you know, you don't have to run for office in, in Massachusetts after. Don't worry, you know, we're not going to. Uh... Right. Right. <laughs> so, so I want to go back to the word of wisdom that you start this interview with the fact that the more we depart from the way that we evolve as a species in terms of what we eat, the more we are in trouble. And that's the reason why the Western diet is so detrimental for us. Mm-hmm. I think that it's, it's not a matter of gluten that needs to be eliminated from everybody. Because a lot of people, they ask me this, because you know gluten is one of the stimulus that release zones. So we all right. leak when we eat gluten. Right. But there are consequences and consequences. If you don't have the other genes that put you at risk for chronic inflammation, that leak goes on and off, and that's it. It's not staying on forever. Mm-hmm. So, personally, I think that everything, everything, including gluten, that is consumed in moderation and balance, it's good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's the excessive that is right. a problem. Right. So, it's you know, point. even red meat, for example, right. we're omnivore. I right. think that red meat is fine. Right. It was fine, you know, for our gutters hunters. But right. you cut an animal. You need to work much more than getting a piece of fruit or tubers that don't run right. anywhere. And they weren't eating sixteen ounce steaks back That's in the right. day. They, they were they were lucky they got a little piece of meat for a couple of days, and then uh, you know, right and again because you know in general they caught a really small animal. They didn't get mammoth. Right. So right. Animal, <laughs> we have to share with you know with the other people. There. Right. So <laughs> right. if you eat a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, yeah, a lot of nuts, tubers, olive oil. And, and especially, you know, meats, um, you know, fish and so on and so forth, yeah. and gluten, I think that that will really feed the microbiome that has been mm. engineered to live in a symbiotic relationship and therefore in a peaceful way with us. That's yeah. what I think. So I, think I don't great. advocate, you know, gluten-free for everybody, but moderation for everybody for oh, sure. That's a great answer. Uh, all right. I'm just going to summarize a little bit for anyone who's been listening or tunes in what we discussed. Basically, celiac disease and gluten intolerance is a lot more prevalent than we previously imagined. Increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut is a real phenomenon and has serious implications uh, and probably for autoimmune conditions and other extra intestinal symptoms. Gluten evaluation is now more accessible than ever. Your doctor can order a simple test to screen you for that. I'm definitely encouraging all of our listeners to who have any interest in this to get the book, Gluten Freedom. It's terrific, really great read. And I just, as I said, I cannot wait for gut feelings to come out in the spring. And maybe I can schedule another podcast with Dr. Fasano because I'm sure once I get to read that, I'm going to have a lot more questions. So Dr. Fasano, I want to thank you again for making the time. I know you're super busy and you're doing some incredible things there. Even with COVID, I heard from, from some of your assistants, which I think is so commendable and remarkable. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.